You know, when I looked at the scripture to see where I wanted to go this week, I at first thought of skipping the last four verses of Acts 11, but I knew, yes, I knew, like Debbie is doing, a horrified face, I knew that I would come before <laughs> Scarb <laughs> or, or somebody to, to take me to task. So, no. And the more I looked at this, I saw that these last four verses fit perfectly with the lessons of both Acts 10 and Acts chapter 11. We've seen the contrast of the rules God set up for the Jews, page upon page, ordering all aspects of religious observances and daily interactions between people in their everyday life, both Jew to Jew and Jew to Gentile. We saw that contrasted with with the um, almost absolute freedom of the Christian life. Last week, I pointed out that there is not so much as an order of worship found in the New Testament. Now, as practitioners of the regulative principle of worship, we believe that we should only include those practices that can actually be found in the worship of the early church. Uh, To that end, our service here at Mountain Reformed Baptist Church include scripture reading. Gosh, we got our fill today, did we not? I was sorry for Bob who volunteered to, to play. He didn't realize he was asking for an hour's worth of service here. But uh, scripture reading in the call to prayer and the Old and New Testament chapters, we have prayer. Uh, We have the singing of hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, the preaching of the word, communion, baptism, doxology, which we do find in the Bible, and the benediction. And that is all. What do we not do? There is no special music, no soloists here. Uh, And to be honest, I did that a number of times in church in my life, be the soloist writing songs for a service and then singing them. But no special music, no skits, no so-called religious dancing. And and Aaron and I were talking about that. And then I go on Facebook and my daughter's pastor posted some dancing in church, put to totally inappropriate music. He says, whoever posted this, I thank you. But it was pretty silly. Anyway, no dancing Uh, religious dancing, even though we do see David in the Old Testament dancing before the Lord. Uh, No choirs, and there's a really good reason for that. Maybe someday we'll talk about it. No cantatas in our church. But there is one more thing that we do not include in our Sabbath service that virtually every other Christian church does, including a number of our Reformed churches. I took a look inside... uh, I was at Sentinel Baptist Church yesterday, Jihad, Al-Karaki. I love that name for a reform. It might be my favorite name of a reformed Christian pastor of all time, uh, Jihad Al-Karaki. But I took a look inside his sanctuary when I was down for the messengers meeting. And upon leaving, there tucked away in the foyer was a discreet box for offerings. Now we do the same. The box is in the back. The most out front should have told you. No, uh, the box is in the back. 
Now, Mike, you might say, I know the early church took offerings. Uh, Just last week, I spoke of uh, Barnabas selling a piece of property and giving the proceeds to the apostles to distribute. That is true, but was it part of their worship service? We don't see that. Uh, Today's passage deals more thoroughly with that. And I'm going to preach a... (laughs) A sermon on giving to the church that you've never heard before. I've heard a lot of them in my time. And sometimes I've, anyway, sometimes I've wondered about them. But you're going to hear one you haven't heard before, um, I bet. So, today's passage deals with that and also with the subject of tithing and the widow's might. So let's read Acts, and as you know, I like to go back to Scripture for anything we're going to preach from here, for anything we order in the service. We will go back to Scripture and see what they say. Uh, So let's read Acts uh, 11, 27 through 30, our Scripture for today, and then we'll delve into it verse by verse. For context, I'm starting back at verse 19, though. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And that's where we ended last week. Verses 27 through 30 that we're covering today say, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Verse 27 says that prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now some argue that John Baptist was the last of the prophets. And He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, if you don't count Jesus. I generally tend to count Jesus, and Jesus was a prophet. Therefore, I would say that the Old Testament prophets ended with Jesus and the start of the church. But God's prophets continued on. And how do I know that? It just just said that, okay? Scripture says that prophets came down from Jerusalem. So there were prophets in the New Testament church. Verse 28a says, And one of them, named Agabus, stood up. Agabus shows up twice in Acts, uh, here and in chapter 21. 
Both times he is called a prophet. Both of his prophecies come true. That's how we know he was a prophet. His his accuracy rate that we know of was 100% because we know that that's the accuracy rate demanded of Old Testament prophets uh, on the penalty of death. So it really stood you good to be 100% accurate. Scripture doesn't record this, but um, Christian tradition lists Agabus as one of the 70 original disciples of Jesus, listed back, I believe it was Luke. My sentence stopped. What can I say? It's interesting. Luke talks about the 70 and names none of them in that list. doesn't say anything. Now, I can go back to... Um, to secular history, or really, it's actually church history, Codex Barocianus. Now, it's from um, the 1800s. Lists all 70, for however accurate they are, and yes, Agabus is listed in that list. I throw this out only because he was a known quantity to the disciples. It's not like somebody just wandering in off the street and saying, I'm a prophet. This fellow was known from the times of Jesus walking the earth till the early church. Now, the verse 27 says, Now these prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus, and we stopped there, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And then in parentheses, it says this took place in the days of Claudius. The emperor Claudius ruled Rome from 41 to 54 AD. And if you'll remember, if you were taking notes last week, we think that this is taking place, this uh, going to the church in Antioch in 42 AD. So it's right in the right time frame there. And this aside in Acts, I'm going to assume it's simply to date and authenticate Agabus' prophecy. Josephus, we quote Josephus often, historian, Jewish historian, not favorable to Christians at this time, if he was later, and we're not positive of that, recorded a drought that occurred during Claudius' reign that lasted three years. The drought, it says, uh, famine over the whole world, well, the drought was in the Nile Valley. I did not know this, but the Nile Valley was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. If you know anything about the Nile Valley, the waters from the Ethiopian highlands come down. They used to flood until they built the Aswan Dam, bringing fresh mud and dirt down. Very, very fertile reason because of this. But, and because it was so warm and temperate a climate, the Romans used it for most of the food they grew as their breadbasket. You remember that it was a drought in not just the Nile Valley, but all of Southwest Asia that had Jacob send Joseph's brothers to Egypt to purchase grain that Joseph advised Pharaoh to store up during the seven years of plenty that was to be followed by the seven years of famine. I suspect the southern Mediterranean climate is a lot like southern California, stretches of drought interrupted by floods, you know, and that's, that's, I think that's what they had back then also. So Agabus 
prophesies a famine for the world. Verse 29 shows the disciples in Antioch believed the prophecies of Agabus and decided on a a course of action. Uh, Verse 29 says, So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Agabus prophesied a famine that would happen over all the world. That would, of course, mean all of the Roman world. Antioch, it would seem, was not as affected as Judea was because the brothers are sending the money to Judea. Now, even, so even before the famine occurred, the disciples in Antioch took an offering for the church in Judea. Now, this was quite an action for this new, first ever Gentile church to take. There is no doubt that they were under suspicion by the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. After all, Barnabas was sent to find out what was going on. And, they, and so he gets there, and at the end, we see the Gentiles take an offering for the established church in Jerusalem, whereas the usual modern model is that the established church supports the new church plant. We have this turned a little bit backward. The new church supporting that. Not only that, but the formerly despised Gentiles sent a love offering to the Hebrews. See how God works this together? You know, getting Hebrew and Gentile together, and it's the Gentiles making the move in the spirit of the Lord to send money to support the Hebrews. Verse 30 concludes, And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Uh, With this, Barnabas returns to Jerusalem with the gift from Antioch. Paul travels with him for the first time in many years going back to Jerusalem. One of my sub-themes of my teaching in Acts has been to not see events as isolated in Scripture from because of modern teaching. I have brought up the thief on the cross a number of times in preaching this, saying it's not an aberration. When, when an emphasis in Scripture is put on something, the thief on the cross at the very end of Jesus' life, uh, the same with making disciples of all men, baptizing them at the end of Jesus' life. We should pay attention to this. So, here... At the very beginning of the church, here in Acts, we have two instances. The first two instances of giving an offering in the Christian church. Uh, The first one occurs in Acts 4, and we have seen that. I briefly went over Barnabas last week. It says, uh, starting in 32, verse 32 of Acts 4, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. 
And listening to this on verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that is our same Barnabas, who is now taking that offering back to Jerusalem. There is not, I want to point out, an offering plate being passed around. For as far as we can tell from Scripture, the apostles did not say, hey, we need money here to get this operation going. Instead, there is an outpouring of love and gratitude that motivated Christians to spontaneously give money to the apostles to distribute to those who needed it. This is the first mention of Christian offerings. Now we have this one in Antioch. Verse 29 says again, So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This does not mean that the disciples determined what every person could afford. And gave them a bill. You know, I'm, I'm told that that is what the Mormons do. Um, audit the finances of their members and then give them a bill for their tithes and tell them this is what you owe. That is not what's happening here. Instead, this action be, should be read this way. I'm, so I'm going to reorder my last sentence. So the disciples determined to sit to... So the disciples determined to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, everyone according to his ability. This is the essence of Christian giving. Once again, it is spontaneous. It's loving. It's joyful giving. Everyone according to his ability. Jesus himself gave this example of godly giving in Luke 21, 1-4. And you'll know the story well. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, there is no way in the eyes of the world, especially in the eyes of our modern world, so given to symbolic gestures that this world is, that the poor widow gave more than all the others. There is no way that our world would see it that way. She gave nothing. I believe I heard once that she gave less than a penny in in our current money. She gave nothing. But in the eyes of God, we see what Jesus is saying. In the eyes of God, a sacrificial, loving, faithful heart is the most important thing a person possesses. You know, 
David was a man after God's own heart, right? God looks at the heart of people. David, David was not a man after God's own money. David was a man after God's own heart. In Luke 6, 38, what we call the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And I have heard that taught in regard to tithing myself. That, you know, long time ago, and I do mean long time ago, I was reading about uh, the Laterno Machinery Company. They were a big machinery firm, uh, heavy moving, like Caterpillar. And they were convinced that uh, to tithe their income from their business. I am not speaking against that. The message, however, was that they always got back more from sales than they tithed, directly from the tithing. Now, is this what Jesus was teaching here? Well, let's put this in context. Uh, Luke 6, 32 through 38. So we're going back just a couple verses from what I just taught you. says this, and this is the context in which he says, given it will be given to you. He says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. And condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Do you think that was a health and wealth prospect uh, uh, message there? Because I don't. What is Jesus talking about here? It's not about money. It's about the condition of your heart. That's entirely what it's about. Money has nothing to do with this. Jesus is talking about love, about judging others unlovingly and condemning them, refusing to forgive. And then, and then he talks about giving to others. Do you really think this is about offerings in church? If this were about money, tithe your income to the church and God will give you more back with interest. How is that different than, do you remember Reverend Ike back in the 70s? Health and wealth, send me your money. Make me rich and you'll get rich. If you give expecting in this way to get a return of money, it's no different than every huckster pushing the prosperity gospel. Send me money. 
well, hold it. If this works, why don't they give their money away? And then God will give them more, right? If, if, if this is the way, if this is what Scripture is teaching, no, you give your money away first. Let's see how you do. Is their faith not so great? So in this church, no offering plate is passed. Now, I've read that in some old-time churches, the offering was taken at the beginning of the service and counted. And if there wasn't enough, the offering would be taken again as many as three times in a service. A question. Has an offering plate been passed to you and you had no money to give? Because I have. And it's the worst feeling in the world because we're supposed to want to give. And yet, I have a daughter who early in her life was keeping me absolutely broke with medical bills. And, and there was no tithe to give. There might be something to give, but not anywhere near a tithe. Luckily, I believe... As Jesus is explaining here that there's other ways to give, and I've always done that, but not always with money. And not and when a plate would come by, I don't know. It grieved my soul having to let it pass by without giving. It hurt. And it was embarrassing. But when Jesus said, Give, and it will be given to you, good measure pressed down. Shaken together, running over, he was not talking about a church offering, giving a tithe. He saw a widow give a penny, heartfelt, for her faith. From faith and gratitude. Do you not think, because of her heart, and not anything to do with a penny, she received God's kingdom in return? Do you not think that for a second? Of course, that's the point. This is the Christian life. I've said there are no rules in Christianity, but actually, there is this one. It's between you and God. When Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, I believe that this is what that means. That your your salvation is in your heart. It's you giving yourself to God and accepting His gift. This is the rule that you, that you abide in Him within your heart. The Jews were given pages of rules, how to tithe, uh, what to tithe, to the point that Jesus ridiculed them saying, you tithe your mint and cumin, but you ignore the weightier things of the law. And he didn't just mean that they tithe their mint and cumin. That's how far down the list they went of their tithes. They already tithed their money. They tithed their income. They tithed what came from their land. They went down tithing their mint and cumin so that they would be seen as righteous while neglecting, as Jesus says, the weightier things of the law. So in this church and others, like this one, no offering plate is passed. But that does not mean no offering is offered or taken. 
It simply means that a box sits, hopefully inauspiciously, like a jihad's church, in the back that as Acts 11 says, everyone, according to his ability, will contribute to the work of God. Everyone, according to his ability. And that ability might be time. And it might be it might be outreach to others. It might be any number of things. And it might be money. For a lot of people, it is. And they are able to give. But it is everyone according to his ability. As it says right there at the beginning of the church. One last thing. Aaron and I like to tithe. Okay, I'm not talking, no, it doesn't always happen. Uh, I don't go down through my mint and cumin either, okay? I don't really do that, but it hasn't happened throughout my life. Uh, With young family, it was hard to do. That doesn't mean it was not a goal, because a tenth of what God has given me is... Not enough for what he's forgiven me, but that being said, through anyone's life, it is everyone according to his ability. Enough said. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have given us, but what Jesus is talking about here is a heart that longs for you, that longs to be just, a heart that longs to be loving, a heart that longs to do your will. This is what God would like us to be giving to his kingdom. And yes, money is necessary for any number of things. But our rule from Jesus from the apostles in the early church is everyone according to his ability. We thank you for the gifts you have given us and we say amen.